Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, wildcard weekend got a lot wilder than I think we were, we figured it was going to be. I loved it. I, mean, I was so glad, you know, when we had the podcast on Friday, we predicted pretty much chalk. And yep. also the line suggested this was just going to be sort of a, a milk toast weekend. And so the fact that we got what we got is insanely exciting. Yeah, some of them were a little bit more surprising than others. You know, I feel like the Titans, you probably just no one figured they were going to win that game. It didn't look like they were going to. And then obviously the Falcons are the Falcons. I and mean, that's not shocking. We'll dig into all of that as we move forward here. Plus your craziest headline that you actually believe my ringer of the week and Danny is going to join us to kind of go over a year in review all the teams we lost and kind of where they go from here. But before we get into that, let's get into these four games, beginning with that shocker in Kansas City. Second and ten. Mariota's got it. Throws deep middle. Caught. End zone. Touchdown, Titans. 22 yards on the strike to Eric Decker. And how about Tennessee? Down 21-3 at the half. They've come all the way back to take the lead with 6.06 to go in the game. Kevin, I mean... It's just a really terrible collapse by the Chiefs. But, I mean, the Titans did enough to win. It was just kind of a bizarre second half of that game from Mariota throwing a touchdown pass to himself to Kareem Hunt getting pretty much no work. I mean, what are you what are you taking away from the Titans winning that game? I think it was sort of a perfect storm for the Titans. Obviously, Travis Kelsey is now in the discussion when we talk about those sort of MVPs we don't find out until they're gone. Uh, Earl Thomas, yeah. Aaron Rodgers, uh, Ryan Tannehill in a weird way, as we've discussed. Travis Kelsey is now firmly maybe on that Mount Rushmore for this season. Um, the, the the Chiefs fell apart when he wasn't there. I think that the Titans got pretty lucky. I think when Marcus Mariota catches his own touchdown pass. Yes, that's luck. But having said that, Marcus Mariota now is in his third year. And he's never, I don't think he's ever going to be an elite, elite quarterback, but there have been enough games where the team has been good enough. He's made a couple of big plays. I mean, he threw a block that sealed the game. And so I think that he's not, is he a great quarterback? No. Is he a good quarterback? For most of the game, he was not, but he's athletic enough and smart enough to make a handful of plays that got them to win. Having said that, this was this was a Chiefs failure. This was an ab- this is on the Chiefs 99.8%. And then the other the other 0.2% is uh pissed off Mike Malarkey avenging the report that he was about to get fired. The fact that the Chiefs collapsing in the second half is the reason that Mike Malarkey is going to keep his job is hilarious. And I kind of hate that for Marcus Mariota's like future and and his upside as a quarterback, because I think that Mariota has a lot of talent. I I think that he can still be a very good quarterback. He had an objectively bad season. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I hate seeing him in this offense. I think that they do not use him play to his strengths that well. There are elements of what you saw of what Marcus Mariota can be in that game in two different ways. One, we've, PFF had him at receiver. You mean, you mean, you mean he can be a receiver? Well, yeah, that's exactly what they need him to be for him to reach his upside. No, I think that you saw what he can do in certain areas of the field with certain elements. So he was, I think, 16 of 19 between the numbers for 188 yards. Yep. And he really is good on passes in that area. He's not good outside the numbers. He was terrible outside the numbers this year. And I think part of the reason, part of the way they can help him is that Marcus Mariota was the best play action quarterback in the NFL this year on a per throw basis. He had 122.8 rating, hit 5.5 more yards per attempt on average with play action than without. And there were a lot of plays in that game where he used it well, when they can kind of empty the middle of the field and let him work there. He has really good touch between the numbers. And I think you saw that. So if they can lean on that, that's going to help them. And they did Mariota as a runner. I mean, think about how many plays he extended, the scrambles that got them first downs. I mean, that can be devastating. So I think that was kind of the combination, right? It wasn't necessarily that the chiefs, the play calling, everything else is going to get roasted. They didn't have the ball. The Titans bled that game in the second half with a combination of Mariota scrambling and Derrick Henry getting it done on the ground. And that's the way that you can beat a team that's better than you is by bleeding out the clock and just not letting them run any plays. I mean, they ran seven plays in the third quarter. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you want Kareem Hunt to get more work in that game, but it's just was simply they weren't sustaining any offense, period. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Brandon Kiley, who's a, um, a radio host in Missouri, tweeted this out. And, you know, they had they ran 11 plays in the second half when they led and four of them were Kareem Hunt run. Would you have wanted? Yeah. Two more, maybe, but it's not like they 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 benched him or something, or they took him totally out exactly. of the game plan. I mean, the 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 play calling thing, eh, it, it, it's it's a little bit overblown in my opinion. You know, Marcus Mariota, his splits can be really ugly, and I know, obviously, you can reverse engineer it and look at you know his his numbers in the win versus numbers in his loss, and and across the NFL, it's always going to look pretty bad. But I think he's two and a half more times likely to throw an interception in a loss. Uh, I mean, his when he's bad, he can be really, really bad. And I thought that as long as you sort of avoid, and a lot, listen, a lot of the, the, the sort of bad Marcus stuff can sometimes be a product of a weird offensive line, a weird offensive scheme. Um, you know, there have been points this year where his receivers certainly haven't helped him. That was true of a, of a lot of, of the wild card game. But I I was assuming that as long as Marcus wasn't a disaster, and he has been at times this season, that the Titans are going to be in this late. And that's why I'm not totally shocked this happened because a good Marcus Mariota or a decent Marcus Mariota can make enough plays at the end of the game. And I know, I, look, making enough plays to win is a well-worn cliche that basically was invented by coaches, but that's actually what happened with the Titans. So let's get into the other side of this, because I feel like we can't address this game without having an Andy Reid conversation. We're going to talk about Alex Smith a little bit later with Danny, so we're not going to dig into that right now. But, I mean, this is just another terrible playoff moment for Andy Reid. And I'm not sure that there's a couple different directions you can go with this, in my mind. This team shouldn't have been that good this season. They were not good on defense. They lost Eric Berry in the first week of the season. Their offensive talent hadn't changed very much. It was mostly just a product of, how they really game the system schematically and were a better offense than they had any right to be. So the fact that Andy Reid created this offense and was one of the most efficient in football pretty much out of nothing is the reason that they're in the playoffs in the first place. But then again, when it comes down to it, there's just this unbelievable failure in the most important moment. And that's kind of just Andy Reid's legacy in general. Uh, yeah, I mean, I it, it really... It's interesting to me because at this point, the only thing Andy Reid can do, and, and it's a shame because he's such he's been such an offensive innovator. You know, it goes back to something that I think Chuck Klosterman said a couple of years ago on our boss Bill Simmons podcast, which is that Andy Reid is an elite coach at what, 98% of things that coaches have to do? Like he's better during the week. He's better on, you know, before the game. The only time he's bad is game management and then in the fourth quarter of playoff games. And guess what? Both of those things are very, very important. And at this point in his career, the only thing, even though he's he's invented a million schemes, even though going back to not ignoring what he's been doing with the spread this year, he was an innovator in some of the West Coast stuff in the 90s when that, that offense was still developing. And his legacy, unless he wins a Super Bowl in the next couple of years, which barring a Mahomes, you know, rise to superstardom will not happen. His legacy will be that every time he got to a big spot, he choked. And that's uh, not only is it a shame, it's probably well-deserved because there's, there's, a, there's a pretty large sample size at this point. So it's equal parts tragic and, and well-earned. In the past 15 years, outside of Bill Belichick, who do you think is the best head coach in the NFL? Pete Carroll. That's a good answer. I mean, he hasn't. I, Pete Carroll. When did Pete Carroll get hired in Seattle? It's been eight years. And then, and then, re, and then Reed right there. I mean, that's Andy Reed's probably right in that conversation. I mean, I mean the it fact depends. That he's it, it, it depends. Double digit games a year is it's remarkable. It's de- it just they can yeah. never get over the hump. It depends. The, the the Carroll question. I mean, that just comes down to did they have to. Who did the most in the last 15 years? Did Andy Reid's consistency trump Carroll's sort of bright, shining run uh, over five years? The answer is probably no. But I mean, I think that that's my point is that Andy Reid is in that conversation very near the oh, top. Oh, without a doubt. You know, just when and you he consider also, what it takes to have done what he has done with every single team year in and year yeah, out. But also, he gave a lot to the sport as far as innovation which you can't say for most of the really good coaches um, in the last handful of years. Andy Reid, I mean, even this year, 
Look how many schemes around the NFL were just straight up ripped off from what Andy Reid did in week one. The New England Patriots, who, by the way, are probably going to win the Super Bowl, admitted in week two that they just stole a bunch of plays from the Chiefs in week one. I mean, that's it. that is part of Andy Reid's legacy as much as, you know, the, the unpleasantness. And hopefully, I mean, it's hard. It's always difficult to parse this. But I'm hoping that his offensive coordinator this year did a good chunk of that innovating because he now runs my football team. So can we talk know, can we'll we talk about, about that now? That, can we talk about that right now? Sure. We can talk about it now for 30 seconds. Okay. I like Matt Nagy. I had a long conversation with him in August about RPOs. I think he's an interesting hire. And I think that it's sort of what we talked about with the the sort of McVeigh effect that, okay, he had one year coordinating experience, basically. Um, I'm, I'm totally okay with it. The Bears weren't going to get anybody better. I'm in. I, I, th- I think about it in a couple different ways. I think if you look at what the Chiefs were on offense and what Trubisky would be in a play action, you know, move the quarterback around RPO heavy system, I think that it makes total sense. I think what he's going to be able to do with Tariq Cohen makes me excited. Just the innovation side of it and how much they can just improve the situation for their quarterback and their overall offensive outlook. I'm excited about that. At the same time, he was never more than a co-offensive coordinator. Yep. He has very well, few. Well, I mean, that, that's. If he, I mean, the, are you, are you talking, Brad Childress was sort of a figurehead in his last year. No, I'm talking about with Andy Reid. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, he, he that, that's true. But he was, Nagy was the co-offensive coordinator in Kansas City with, with Brad Childress. Sure. But he was also the co-offensive coordinator with Andy Reid this right. year. I mean, there is Andy Reid takes a, has a lot of ownership of that offense, and I mean, it's not as if Matt Nagy is just this brilliant play caller who happened to have an offensive-minded head coach that used to do that. This is not like McVeigh. I mean, McVeigh had a season and a half's worth, I believe, of calling plays, and Matt Nagy does not. So I just feel like parsing who deserves the credit for that offense and what it is is difficult, and it's hard to predict what guys without that kind of managerial experience as a coordinator will do when given a head coaching job. I am excited about this, but it is tepid excitement. That's what I will say. When I did a deep dive into RPOs in the off season, I saw a lot about how Trubisky excelled at RPOs when he was in North Carolina. Did the bears do anything creative with RPOs this year? And do you expect that to be an uptick as far as Nagy taking over? Not a set. Not they re- didn't really. Most of the play action stuff the Bears did was based on boots and getting Trubisky on the move, which I would like to see. I mean, I think that that is a that should be a part of this offense. But I think that having him in the shotgun and running that type of stuff is a very good idea. I, I, mean, I think that he will. It'll, it lends to his skill set. Robert, I can't believe there was a play that was fairly new that was on the cutting edge that John Fox wasn't all over. Yeah, shocking. I mean, who who could have ever imagined? Who it? could have imagined that there would have been an innovation that passed John Fox by? All right, the Titans were not the only underdog to win this weekend. The Falcons ended the Rams' Cinderella story with an impressive win in Los Angeles. Matt Ryan will be in the shotgun and flanked by Freeman with a couple tight ends looking into a five-man secondary. From the seven, shotgun snap on the goal to go. Here comes the rush. He throws a long pass, far sideline. It's an over-the-shoulder catch on the near pylon. Touchdown! Grab! Touchdown, Julio Jones! The Rams were a fun story, Kevin. That story is no longer relevant. Nope. <laughs> uh, the, the Falcons just kind of came in and played like a team that went to the Super Bowl last year. Matt Ryan, do you know what his quarterback rating under pressure was? I mean, it had to be something ridiculous because he was under pressure the entire game, <laughs> the first half especially. Let me, let me just let me just let me just give you a top five for the weekend, okay? Alex Smith under pressure, quarterback rating in that game forty-two. Jared Goff, 53. Cam Newton, 69. Marcus Mariota, 79. Matt Ryan is number one. Marcus Mariota was was number two with 79. Matt Ryan was 108.9. Matt Ryan, when when under pressure, was better than the vast majority of players at any time in the NFL. He did a really good job of extending plays. The reason that's significant is, is obvious, which is that Aaron Donald was going to get his. He was going to wreck the game. The pocket was going to collapse routinely because that's what pockets do when you're playing the, the Los Angeles Rams. Matt Ryan was impervious to it. That is my takeaway from this. Matt Ryan, it's not, it's not ever going to be 2016 again as far as that offense, but that was a hell of a performance by him. And that's kind of what I wrote yesterday. 
was that it's time to recalibrate your expectations of the Falcons. I mean, it's not there. The 2016 offense is not coming. We're 17 games in. It's not going to be just that mindless eating machine of a group. That still doesn't mean that they're not a real contender when you consider what this team is, because the offense has enough. Julio Jones in the playoffs is just an entirely different beast. Yep. I mean, every time that the stage gets huge, that guy just plays out of his mind. And we're going to see that he was the best player on the field on Sunday outside him and Aaron Donald. I mean, they're going back and forth every game where Julio is the best player on the field. The Falcons have enough to win. There is enough elsewhere on that roster where that they're dangerous. And then the defense, in my mind, is what really makes them interesting. Just because you still have, I mean, I know we're a year removed. They're not rookies anymore, but they're all still like 23 years old. Yep. I mean, just because we saw Deion Jones in the Super Bowl doesn't make him any older. It's like last year when everyone was talking about the Cubs. It's like, no, they're all still 24. They've just been around. So, I mean, you have Deion Jones. The fact that you know, Tag McKinley is making plays. They have so much athleticism on their offense, on their defensive line, just across the board, that those guys can really affect the game. They blitzed a solid amount. I think that was a 100% a part of their game plan. And they tackled extremely well in space. And that's what this group can do. We saw it against the Saints. They do a great job of limiting these kind of space player running backs that have such an impact on the game now because sure. all their dudes in the secondary and the back end can just cover so much ground. So they're interesting, man. I mean, I just think they have enough, If it, even if this version is not as thrilling or as captivating as the one last year was. Obviously, their defense stepped up in a big way as the season went along, and we always knew that there was enough talent on the offense that they could click like this. So this isn't a total surprise. We actually probably should have seen it coming, and I'm disappointed in myself for picking the Falcons. And, I kind and, of and, am, too. Yeah. It's easy to get caught up in the Rams, though. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's such a good story. They were so fun. You know, I mean, that's I understand how it happened, even though you're probably right. So. The two guys I want to talk about, number one, as you just mentioned, Deion Jones, the athleticism there, essentially every team has figured out that having a running back who can play in space, who can go up the seam routes, who can spread the, you know, in the spread formation, um, you know, basically catch a ball out of the backfield whenever that's really important because the matchup with, with linebackers is, you know, basically guys who can play in space have an all-time advantage right now um, more than any other era with, with linebackers because linebackers just aren't what they used to be. Deion Jones is as athletic a guy as there is in that spot. To have him in the, on the, middle, in the middle of the field um, taking away those sort of things is a huge advantage. Um, I, I saw PFF write up that essentially he was dominant in taking away the, the, the underneath passes. Um, and if you can take away that in the modern NFL – and you can you can just blow up those plays. That's really important because underneath passes, unfortunately, are a huge part of the game right now. And Robert Alford is the other guy. I mean, just great in coverage. They're getting. They are a deeper, he had a fantastic game. They are deeper than we thought on defense, and I'm excited about it. And I'm I'm ready for anything uh, on on against against the Eagles. I see, to me, it's not necessarily that they're deeper. I think they have more guys than they had last year by virtue of health. I mean, that's the biggest difference to me. Obviously, McKinley is a new factor. But really, it's just that they have all of their guys at their disposal. There's no one that's hurt they didn't on have, defense. They didn't have Trufant I mean, last the year. They, they made the be. Super Bowl. That's right. They didn't have Trufant. That's a good point. Yep, he's the other guy. I mean, so think about it. Claiborne, Trufant. I mean, their their depth is just is very good, but it's more so that they just haven't gotten hurt. I mean, this is the right. full stable of Falcons defensive players, and that's important. And the other factor here that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that Dan Quinn is an excellent defensive football coach. I mean, that team on Sunday just looked like a really well coached team in two different ways. One, just preparation in general. Yeah. I mean, the degree to which they snuffed out a lot of the screen game and just were able to see it unfold before it even happened against a very creative play, a very creative play caller was immensely impressive to me. And the other thing of it, this is something that doesn't get talked about enough, just period tackling. They tackled so well. And I'm thinking of a couple different plays. I mean, Jones, obviously that sticky head on Gurley in the backfield was disgusting. And there was another one where I just jumped off the screen. Brian Poole just, dropped Gurley on a screen in the open field. And when your nickel corners are, you know, 
bringing down 230-pound Todd Gurley's in the open field one yard past the line of scrimmage. That's how you beat a team like the Rams. The thing that I've written about all year is this this sort of check down culture in football and how there's more passing than ever, but yet yards per uh, air yards per attempt has, has gone down uh, over basically since it started the passing boom in 2011. Quarterbacks are just taking what's in front of them, and it's less visually arresting than than ever, um, but it's effective. And the reason it's effective is because most teams can't tackle. And if you if you drop off a, a pass four yards um, in the air, it's going to get eight or nine yards because most teams are unable to stop it. The Falcons have put an emphasis on tackling. I've talked to Dan Quinn about this. I've talked to uh, the linebackers about this. They are as well-trained a team, and this comes from Pete Carroll in Seattle. They're as well-trained a tackling team as there is. They use all sorts of props. I mean, they, they're built for this. And so in a lot of ways, they are are more equipped to navigate the modern NFL and, and how offenses like to operate than ever. And by the way, I am anticipating Nick Foles being captain check down in the playoffs. This is not Carson Wentz. So that's one thing to keep an eye on. Those short underneath passes are going to get absolutely destroyed and blown up by the Falcons. I mean, we'll talk about this when we preview that game, but if they don't Bortles Nick Foles on Sunday and just run 38 running plays, I, I have no idea what the Eagles are doing, but we, again, we, we, we will get to that at a different time. Bortles. I, right, I, the first I, game, could you imagine at the beginning of the year, if someone had told you that Bortles, it would be a, a, a effective playoff strategy. I think it requires the right team building strategies before <laughs> that, but yes. All right. The first game on Sunday did not have any Julio Jones S fireworks, but it did end in familiar fashion with Jacksonville with the defense sealing a win against the bills. Benjamin sets up to the near side. Peterman looks to the far side. The throw popped up in the air. Interception attempt. Jalen Ramsey. He's got it. And it's over. The Jacksonville Jaguars defense gets it done. And the Jaguars survive. I tweeted this actually after the Aaron Colvin interception. But it is definitely applicable to that Jalen Ramsey pick. When you watch the Jaguars play... It just feels like they believe they deserve the ball more yep. than the players on the other team's offense do. And I've always been fascinated by defenses that reach that point because one, I think it it comes from two different elements in my mind. It's about mindset, but it's also about necessity. Yep. And as someone who kind of understood the modern NFL through the lens of the mid 2000s Bears, who understood that if they did not score, they were going to lose. The Jaguars are very familiar to me. I understand their thought process and they have absolutely reached that point where it's like, yep, it's ours. We're going to take this from you twice a game and we're probably going to take one of them back to the house. There are so many stats we know about turnover luck and all that. And I've talked many times about how what's different about the Jaguars is if you say, okay, this team is going to get a couple turnovers, basically probably score off a turnover or literally score during a turnover. Uh, typically, that's not a sustainable way to win football games, but this is one of the few teams and the mid-2000s Bears are another one of them where that is 100% sustainable and it's something you can rely on every single week. They are that good. Tyrod Taylor led all quarterbacks in this game with 134 yards. That's all you need to know about how this game was played. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I've tweeted this before, so that I, I easily could bring it up. The Lovey Era Bears, first, sixth, third, 13th, second, eighth, first, sixth, and ter- takeaways a year. That's I, I would call that sustainable. They did it a couple different ways. They were like the Tillman stuff, whatever. With the Jags, it's twofold. It's one, their corners are just I mean, ball hawking, just condors. I mean, it's unbelievable how much space they can cover and just how much they are able to get their hands on the ball. And two, it's the Ngakwe kind of factor. I mean, the fact that they have so many strip sacks because that pass rush is so good, it gives you a level of volatility that makes you extremely dangerous. So again, it's not surprising that the Jags pass defense is good. It just week after week, it's able to carry them to wins. Jimmy, the, Jimmy the Garoppolo. I, was, I just oh, want to say, Jimmy Garoppolo ruined the Jaguars' bid for history 
and we need to reflect on how good Jimmy Garoppolo is. The, the, the Jaguars in December were on pace to be the first team in almost 50 years to lead the NFL in takeaways, sacks, and uh, points against. And Jimmy Garoppolo so thoroughly dismantled them that they finished second in all three of those categories. They went from first to second in all three of those categories. So they're, they're not historically good because Jimmy G carved them up. Because Jimmy G is historically good? Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy G, <laughs> Jimmy G took the records from them, yes. One of the things that I, I mean, obviously the past defense is great, but impressed me on Sunday. And it was, you know, aided in part by the fact that LaShawn McCoy was playing on one foot. But the Jaguars' run defense was such a problem for much of the season. And again, it's still the worst thing that they do on defense. Yeah. But each they had so many individual guys that played well in that game. And, I mean, I'm going to get to one of them a little bit later. But the one, I think that factor that we haven't really considered with that defense, I mean, we, people have talked about it, but you know, it's just he's not the, one of the bigger names because of who else is there. If Darius plays the way he did on Sunday, they have a real chance to just destroy everyone yeah. in, in terms of allowing points because him just wrecking things in the middle of the field, eating up blockers, making plays down the line of scrimmage. When you have Campbell and a couple other guys in that front seven, that's enough. I mean, again, it's not, it's gotten better as the season goes on, but it's still not great. But I was just impressed with overall what the run defense looked like on Sunday. Yeah. I mean, when you, I, I, I wrote about this today on the ringer.com Tuesday. But when you have the luxury of going out and getting Marcel Darius and making that fit into the cap because of the way that the cap operates now, obviously at some time down the road, the Jaguars will have to make some tough decisions, but the luxury of being able to say, okay, our run defense will, will improve. if We go out and get a guy who signed a $96 million contract two years ago. That's a nice luxury to have. And you know, there's so, so many implications as far as cap carryover and all that stuff. But I, I've been insanely impressed with with how Tom Coughlin has has uh, been able to to turn this thing around, and a lot of it's been money management, and those sort of trades are are uh, indicative of that. Well, yeah, their decisions are going to have to come next year. By the way, <laughs> they're playing yeah, their defensive line a small fortune. I mean, uh, cutting their twenty million dollar quarterback will certainly help, but their offense, their defensive line you know, kind of bill next year. I mean, that's not sustainable. You're going to have to make choices very quickly here. It'll be fine. I'm not too worried about it. No, it's, they'll be okay. I, I just, it, it's not as if those decisions have to come three years from now. Oh, they're, no, they're on I the know. Horizon. I know, but it's just, there are way, you know, less need as, as he said in our piece today, you know, it's very, very rare that you actually have to let guys go anymore. And Blake Bortles is obviously a different animal because he's worth $20 million and it's a weird fifth-year option thing. But very rarely do you have to let guys go for money anymore. And so I, I think that the Jaguars will be able to keep anybody they, they would like uh, for next year. With the exception sure. of probably I mean, that involves $19 million Blake Bortles. That's, I mean, that's the thing. They don't want Blake Bortles, so that doesn't count. So yes, you're correct in that that's part of the reason. We're going to get with to Tyrod Taylor in a little bit when we talk to Danny, but no, uh, so, you know, we, we don't want to hit on that as much right now. I mean, the Bills, uh, Bills aren't that good of a football team. I mean, that's just kind of the reality of it. They snuck in. It was very fun. You know, they're, they were always fighting an uphill battle against that Jacksonville team. I think Taylor, you know, didn't play well, but how many guys do against the Jags and their defense was solid, but when you cannot score, then it becomes a problem to win playoff games. Yeah, I'd say. Hey, real quick, did you see um, Nathan Peterman and how he sells Nathan Peterman throw pillows on his official website? What? Nathan Peterman has a website. That, I'm going there right now. Okay, go go on Nathan Peterman's Twitter page and click on his official link and look what he sells. He sells Nathan Peterman throw pillows. Nathan Peterman just throws blankets, fleece blankets that say Nathan Peterman and have his face on it. And he, uh, cell phone cases for Apple or Samsung kids onesies. I, there is, this is like Amazon, but just Nathan Peterman. Everything is available here. 
Also, the URL is incredible. It's Nathan-Peterman.myshopify.com. Also, it's not Nathan Peterman. All it says Nate Peterman. Nate, Nate None Peterman. of it is branded with the bills because he can't right. do that legally. Right. <laughs> it's got the NFL PA stuff. This is amazing. There are four types of throw pillows on Nathan Peterman. You're, you're underrating how much stuff is available here. I'm he not, entire... I just called it the Amazon of Nathan Peterman. That's true, but you sold it as pillows. This guy has 10 different men's shirt options. Yeah, I know. I was leading with the what funniest bit. a lace bit. hoodie? I was leading with the funniest oh, bit, oh, which oh, is oh. The, the throw pillow. Like, I maybe in some weird world you want a Nathan Peterman shirt, whatever, who cares? But where, where you, what do you need to throw? The pillow throw? is the weirdest. The fleece blanket? Why would you have a Nathan Peterman fleece blanket or a phone case? The fact case? that there are four pillows is just amazing. Let me tell you something. Two of them have his face on them. One just has, an, it just, it's just, there's a football. It's a white football and a blue pillow. And it just says Nate Peterman. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Dude. Oh, I'm, this I'm, is, I'm gonna, I, the career move for Nathan Peterman is just bottom out and be as bad as possible. And Nathan Peterman, like, cell phone cases would be the absolute top gag gift in Western New York. Uh, people, you, I really should just buy a bunch of these to give them out to people. It'd be fun. Also, what is a maniac sweatshirt? Yeah, I, dude, listen, we could spend the rest of the pod on this. Okay. Uh, yeah, we should move on because now I'm, I'm going they down only the, have, he, really, he, really, he really only has four or five designs that he repeats on every single on every sure, single. that's item. the right move. I mean... Oh, overhead with overall design work. I'm sure he's saving some cash. Just smart business. This is like a top five funny thing in sports right now for me. Ryan Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan O'Hanlon discovered it in the middle of the season and I threw it into one of my columns and it didn't get enough attention, I felt. And so I I tweeted it out during the uh, during the the game and uh it's it's i missed that somehow this is it's still i needed to get more i needed to get more attention don't normalize this we can talk about that for the rest of the podcast we have to move on a little bit final game of the weekend saints panthers it looked like the saints were in control cam newton makes some stuff happen but just when you thought the carolina might make a push the saints defense comes up big for them again fourth down and the season for the carolina panthers and for this new orleans saints from the 34-yard line, Saints 31, Panthers 26. Three receivers left, two wide right. Newton, pressure comes. Newton in trouble, and Newton is sacked. Von Bell blitzing Cam Newton. Drops Newton to send the Saints on to the divisional round next weekend. Kevin, we talked all most of the season. You know, the Saints defense is much better than we thought. You know, those running backs, Alvin Kamara was maybe the most exciting player in football. And when it all comes down to it, it turns out that just having Drew Brees as your quarterback is probably the most important part of this. Yep. It turns out that having Drew Brees is better than not having Drew Brees. Um, this he was, was incredible on Sunday. This was a weird game. Um, I think that we all, it's funny, Micah Peters was on Slow News Day. Um, on the ringer.com and he's a huge Saints fan and we were talking about how what it was like for him to watch a Saints team in which Drew Brees was not the focal point and six days later Drew Brees is very much back to being the focal point and that's a it's a nice reminder I don't know if the Saints make a run to the Super Bowl I don't know if Drew Brees is going to be as incredible every single game. But what's nice to know is that they have a lot of offensive options. And Sean Payton is the kind of guy who's going to be able to to game plan in a way that that will take advantage of those options. So I think that they are absolutely a Super Bowl contender at this point. Some of the throws he made, I mean, I'm thinking of a couple specifically. The one to Michael Thomas right by the pylon where Thomas kind of had to slide. You can put that in like a one by one box is the only spot. The one that just still doesn't make sense to me, and I watched a hundred times, was the throw to Josh Hill up the seam, where he puts it like just outside of the linebacker's head, yep. where only Josh Hill can see it on a, as a back shoulder throw. There's, you literally could only put that in one spot, and he puts it right there. 
I mean, when Drew Brees is on, it's still something to behold. And that's what happened on Sunday. And then you kind of think about what Michael Thomas is when they're throwing the ball that often. And I don't, people don't really talk about him in the Julio, you know, Antonio Brown level of things. He's right below that. I mean, the guy is just so good. He knows exactly what he is as a receiver. He's not fast. I think he ran like a four, five, five at the combine, something like that but just uses his body incredibly well, understands leverages really well, such strong hands. I mean, it's, I don't know if Drew Brees has ever had a true number one that plays like this. You know, Colston was a slot guy. It was as much kind of a move tight end as Jimmy Graham was. I mean, watching Drew Brees with a receiver like this is new in my mind, and it's fun, man. First of all, Danny Kelly saw Michael Thomas coming. He wrote about him. Last week. And then, Mike, did you see Michael Thomas then just retweeted a bunch of our content after that? No, really? Yeah, I, he, I guess he, I, maybe he liked the site or something after Danny wrote about him. So, like, there were, like, four instances where Thomas was just smashing the retweet button on random things. Good. I'll take that. Why I don't not? Know, maybe it was a mistake. I don't know. I, I just noticed it in the, in the feed that he was, he was just going around clicking. He was, he was extremely online at the end of last week. Congratulations, Michael Thomas, for discovering <laughs> the ringer.com after Danny wrote about you. Um, so I, d- go back and read Danny's piece. It was really, really good and explains why Thomas is so valuable. Um, but yeah, I know. I agree. I mean, th- this, we knew it's funny because we joked about this, even though Thomas was really good last season, we joked in the, in the, in the beginning of the season about where Breeze was going to get his weapons from. And I think that this, you know, it, it exceeded all of our expectations to have an offense this good, but I don't think you can really overstate uh, how easy it is for Drew Brees to make these throws. He's been doing it now for for over a decade. Um, he's incredible, and I hope that he wins this game because we need to do more appreciating of Drew Brees uh, if he truly is, you know, if this might be his last year in New Orleans, which is a possibility, right? Yeah, I mean, but kind of like this conversation we had earlier, I mean, it feels like you don't have to make that decision anymore. No. And I don't think they do. This isn't an Alex Smith thing where Mahomes is sitting there. I mean, if there were, you were so good, this, the Saints were so good this season that willingly moving on from that when you probably don't have to just seems odd to me. Well, I mean, I, I think it's more of Drew Brees has shown a, let's say, tendency to uh, enjoy getting paid a lot of money. Sure. So that's fair. Which, by the way, same, right? So, um, but what I'm saying, yeah, I can't blame yeah. Drew Brees. <laughs> no, it, it, it's he's he's really he signed a couple of extensions that have been worth boatloads of money, and if he reaches the market, uh, I would anticipate that he goes to you know if someone comes in with sort of a blank check Godfather offer, um, then the Saints are vulnerable. Yeah, that's fair, but I just think they've been so good this year that it's mutually in the best interest of all parties. I totally agree. To try to run this back. I, t- I don't. I don't <laughs> ever want Drew Brees to leave New Orleans. I'm just saying that's it's 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 a possibility. Yeah, I don't want this team taken from me. I'm enjoying them way too much. <laughs> well, what about who who, um, who who says no when uh, when Drew Brees moves on to like Washington and then uh, the Saints panic and sign Bortles? <laughs> I say no. <laughs> the, the world says no. I'm, I'm, no, thank you. Please, that would be that would be the happen. darkest possible timeline. Is Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas and Mark Ingram and Bortles? We're going to talk about Cam Newton and just kind of the Panthers' outlook from here. And just news came down that they fired their offensive coordinator and their quarterback coach. There's a lot of stuff moving pieces about that team that they're going to have to look at. So we'll get to that with Danny. Uh, in the meantime, though, Kevin, let's get to your craziest headline from Wild Card Weekend. What you got, Donald Penn? Great, great lineman. We love him here at TheRinger.com. He says, John Gruden to the Raiders is just like Steve Kerr to the Warriors. I don't agree with that, Robert Mays. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that the, the Raiders are uh, as talented as the Warriors. I don't think this is going to be successful at all. And so that is... Uh, that's something I uh, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with Donald Penn on. I think it's a uh, I know you're trying to be positive and all that, but let's let's take it easy, guys. I agree with you in the sense that it's not comparable when when it comes to the talent involved. That being said, 
Donald Penn knows where he plays. Like, this is oh. the right choice. Oh, oh, like, oh so, saying, so you're saying he's pandering. Yeah. So you're not, you're saying, uh, I mean, I, you're, he's not going to compare him to whoever the hell manages the Oakland A's. Well, I think he, I'm, I'm saying he might be more inclined based on what I, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying no, that I know. He, this happened because he plays in Oakland. No, like, I know. If, if the, if the Raiders played in Miami or Tennessee, I don't think that comparison would be as understandable. Got it. So I, I get why it He's happened. saying it Penn's playing the local angle. Yeah. So and that's what's going on. But here's which the is thing. Okay. Here's the thing. Penn played on Gruden's offensive line for three years. And they were particularly kind of God. grim three years. I'm I'm surprised. I, I understand he has to sell this. But anyone who watched Gruden in the last couple of years in Tampa Bay knows that this is not, I mean, it's not Jim Harbaugh where he just, everything he touched in the NFL immediately got better. So I just think that it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird hire to begin with. And I'm certainly not expecting instant success. I mean, Gruden has to relearn how to be a modern coach or learn how to be a modern coach because yes. he's never been a modern coach. And so this idea is going to come in with these high expectations. It's uh, it's a little misguided in my, in my opinion. So here's what we learn is that even Donald Penn, who played for John Gruden, forgot who John Gruden was in the past year. We all forgot how what kind of a coach John Gruden was. And even Donald Penn did after playing for John yeah, Gruden. I think we blocked out like a good chunk, maybe five Gruden seasons. I think we all collectively blocked it out. Absolutely. The Chris Sims years. Every, I mean, the lasting memory is John Gruden beating up the Raiders in the Super Bowl with Money Kiffin's defense. Like, good. I went to a, <laughs> I went to a, uh, a Giants-Bucks playoff game once. Like, a, a crappy one for some reason. I had a friend who was a fan, a Giants fan. But, I mean, those were some those were some crappy teams, man. In the mid two thousands, I will admit that I had a little bit of a dalliance with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and this is before Gruden got there. This was the Dungy era Buccaneers. I just loved the, the players on that team. I loved the defense. I they were number one in my heart for a couple of years there in my early teenage years. Among the personalities that I ascribe that Super Bowl victory to, John Gruden is like 17th. Oh, I agree with I mean, that. It's, that is, I, I do not think of John Gruden when I think of hey, the 2002 Bucks, who were a very important team to me. Do you know what I forgot about? 2007 and 2008 for the Bucks, Gruden's last two years. Do you know who the top passer on both of those teams was? No. Jeff Garcia. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. The Jeff Garcia time. Yep, that happened. I completely... God, the, the list of quarterbacks on those Bucks teams are underratedly the, terrible. The, the, the Gruden's last three years, there were two Jeff Garcia years and Bruce Gradkowski as far as leading passers go. That's amazing. Oh, my God. If you're Derek Carr, right. if you're Derek Carr, are you not worried that you're about to be replaced by, like, Charlie Whitehurst? Just like Gruden just going to his random veterans guy. Gruden, yeah, Gruden, it's going to be Gruden fun just, when people find out that Derek Carr isn't actually that good. Gruden working out like Josh Johnson to be the starter. I can't wait for that. It wouldn't be the first team to do that this year. No, I know. All right. It's time for my ringer of the week. Uh, I was going to talk about Clayus Campbell. We hit him a little bit in the Jaguar section. I mean, the number two guy for me, and I'm down to talk about him anytime anybody wants, is Cameron Jordan. And the guy has been ridiculous all season. And the fact that he played well enough on Sunday to call Matt Khalil speed bump. <laughs> what was it? Speed bump. Speed bump McGee. Speed, speed bump, bump McGee. McGee is how he referred to Matt Khalil. When you can do that as an NFL player and no one really bats an eye, it's like, yep, he's that good. And that guy's that bad. Uh, you've reached a certain level. And the reason, I mean, obviously Jordan's dominance is plain. I mean, he's clearly just an otherworldly talented player. It's not insightful to say Cam Jordan is good, but what stood out to me in that game against Carolina is that most of the time, because Jordan is such a good run defender, he sets up a lot as the left defensive end in that defense, but they put him at right defensive end to take advantage of Khalil. 
And he did several times. He played on both sides. He had actually a a tip pass in the end zone that he's become better at than anyone now in this world without J.J. Watt. No one knocks down passes like Cameron Jordan. I mean, and that affects the game. That stuff is real. But when you can move your guy anywhere and he's effective from pretty much every spot, then you can pick and choose who you want to take advantage of. And I think that's a really nice piece. That makes guys just so much more valuable when there isn't one spot where you have to pencil them in. It's harder to account for them as an offense. And really, you can play the matchups in any situation. And that's what the Saints can do with Cam Jordan. So he does that as a pass rusher, and then he was excellent against the run. His mobility and kind of ability to hold up on those zone plays, he's unlike really any other defensive end in the league right now. I think in all the stuff he can do, you know, Calais Campbell plays inside and outside, but he affects the game in a kind of a different way. You know, he had 14 and a half sacks, but he's a little less explosive. I mean, Jordan is a very just unique entity and he's fun to watch. I mean, he's one of the reasons that team has been as good as they have been. So I just want to say one thing about Matt Kahlo. I wrote a story, as I said, on the ringer.com about how the salary cap has exploded. Essentially any veteran can be, a bargain just because of the way the salary cap works now and that that collecting these assets is as important as ever. And one of the points I make is that it's really, really, really hard to sign a bad contract in the modern NFL. Matt Khalil, bad contract. Five years, 55 million. Well, they have an out after 2019, but still, I mean, his cap hit next year is 12.9, excuse me, is uh, 6.9 and then 12.9. They would pay him essentially $25 million over two years after 2019. Or after yeah, I mean, I, I, three years, excuse me. NFL contracts are fake money, but they, he had... It's $31 million guaranteed. Bad contract. That's too much. Yeah, it's, it's not the best. All right. Coming up, Danny Kelly will be here with a year in review for each of the teams that lost this weekend. And we'll tackle the biggest question for those teams moving forward. It's the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Kevin, January means three things. Cold weather, the NFL playoffs, and The Bachelor. The Ringer Podcast Network has responded by spinning off Juliet Littman's Bachelor Party podcast into its own feed. Every Monday night, right after the show ends on ABC, we post Juliet's breakdown of the latest episode. Juliet's guests include former bachelors like Ben Higgins, former contestants like Ashley I, the ringers Roger Sherman, and super fans like the sports gal. It's the most amazing and dramatic podcast journey you'll ever have. Tell the Bachelor Superfan in your life to subscribe to Bachelor Party on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Art19, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second and 10 at the 20. Five-man pressure. Breeze steps away from pressure. Throwing over the middle. Got a man open. Caught at the 40. Steps away at the 30 and 10. Into the races. Down the sideline at the 10 to the 5. Diagonal into the end zone for the touchdown. 80 yards. Breeze to Tedkin Jr. And the New Orleans Saints are on the board. Up 6 to nothing. Time to welcome in our good friend, Danny Kelly. Danny, how many people tweeted at you after the Ted Ginn touchdown on Sunday? <laughs> I mean, every time Ginn does something now, I get probably like 15 or 20 tweets. It's pretty awesome. I guess I'm I'm kind of driving the Ted Ginn bandwagon these days. So, yeah, that's that's definitely a good thing. What a legacy. What a legacy to have. <laughs> the Dark Knight and Ted Ginn. That's what we'll remember about Danny Kelly years from now. You guys, okay, so I think it was... I don't even know. Was it in the preseason when we were we were kind of like predicting who could have big years or whatever? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, he came up he came up short of the thousand yard mark, I think, which is what you guys were howling at me about. But uh, how was I supposed to know that the Saints were going to turn into like this smash mouth run team? I think if they hadn't done that, it definitely would have come true. So I'm sticking by it. <laughs> I, I think you're all right. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say you were wrong about that. That's very fair. <laughs> he, had, he had a decent year. All right, Danny, we're going to get into the year in review for all these teams and kind of their biggest question moving forward. So let's start with the Chiefs here. And when you're kind of thinking about this Chiefs season, what are you going to be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, to me, this season for the Chiefs is just the story of two teams, really. It was a Jekyll and Hyde Chiefs team. I mean, early on in the year, they're a Super Bowl caliber team. You know, they I think they start 5-0. and They beat a couple of really good teams. They beat the Patriots. Um and it was this really exciting thing because they had this hybrid college offense that was morphed with the the West Coast offense, and Andy Reid had, you know, turned you know Alex Smith into this deep passing guy, and it was just really really exciting. Kareem Hunt emerged as like an MVP candidate. Both he and Smith were MVP candidates, 
And defenses really just didn't have an answer for this team early on. Um, and then, you know, halfway through the year, partway through the year, all that kind of just fell apart. KC lost six out of seven games. I mean, they won one game in, a, in the course of two months. So they completely sort of just fell apart. And the offense just didn't really look like it had early in the year. I think Andy Reid went away from some of the things that they were doing really well early on. Um, and then, you know, again, then they handed off play calling to Matt, to Matt Nagy, who is now Mays, your Bears head coach. Um, he kind of revived the run game, got things back on track. And then, you know, the, the, the Chiefs were really hot down the stretch. And, you know, so it, it was a it was a tale of two teams, obviously, like they just did not look the same in the middle of the year. And I think, you know, that that two month slump really cost them. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like in a way, though, this team kind of didn't have it. And we, we knew that coming right. into the season, they, they they were better than we thought they were going to because they jumped on teams. I mean, what they did schematically was just so impressive. And at a certain point, you just kind of come back to earth when teams have enough film on you and you get used to it. I mean, there was always a defiant ceiling with this team on in the long run. And I think eventually we just got there. Yeah, I mean, and injuries were an issue also. And um, I think kind of like the Alex Smith thing, he came back to earth a little bit, obviously. I think he had his best season in his career, obviously. And um, I don't think the MVP kind of talk early on was unwarranted, but he 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 definitely showed that he wasn't kind of the MVP guy that we saw early in the year. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, I think that when you talk about having like putting a cap on this team, I think there was always kind of that feeling too, like, and and we saw that in the playoffs. Obviously, we saw that last week against the Titans. So, um, it's I think for now, it, looking forward, it is. I mean, there's a huge amount of change that could happen now. And so, um, you know, it, it, both with with Alex Smith being kind of like, how far can Alex Smith take you? And kind of the idea that even Andy Reid is kind of capping your ability to win in the playoffs just based on his playoff, you know, sort of you know history or whatever. So what do you think is the biggest question going forward here for the Chiefs? I mean, I'm pretty sure it's obvious to most people, but let's chat about it. Yeah, I mean, is the Alex Smith era over in Kansas City? I mean, are they going to move on to Patrick Mahomes and kind of start to you know try and get that going? Obviously, he looked pretty impressive in his one start this year. Um, and I mean, I guess it does what Alex Smith did, did what he did this year. Is that enough for him to kind of stick around? Obviously, they have a chance to trade him, and I think a lot of teams probably would be happy to happy to trade for him at this point. I mean, so it's a potential for a huge amount of change. And if they do go to the Patrick Mahomes era, um, what does that mean? Are they still a playoff team? I think that when we talked about this a little bit, you know, on earlier shows, I think 100 per, I mean, I think 98% of the Alex Smith era is over in Kansas city. Yeah. I just feel like that team is in such bad shape with the cap, which is hard to do in this era, but they are. And you would save $17 million by moving on from him. And you drafted a quarterback in the first round that you traded a future first round pick to go up and get. It just feels like all of the writing is on the wall. And the question for me now more is, where does Alex Smith land? How much, what value does he have after this season? Not, did he do enough to stick around? How much is a team willing to give up for him based on what he was? I think at halftime of that Titans game, I would have been 100% sure Smith was coming back. Now, yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, Nagy's out. Childress retired. I don't know if anybody saw that. Childress is just not, yep. not coming back. Um, so they're going to have to either, I'm, I'm sure Reed will probably promote from within, but there's going to be some structural changes there. And there's probably an opening for Mahomes to come in, which I didn't really think was possible, um, again, until they blew that. If, if Smith had won a playoff game, it would have been really hard for them to have, to have moved on from him. But the season ending the way it did. I mean, I think that everyone is pretty much open for change at this point. Yeah, I think that's true. All right. So a team that had most of their changes take place last offseason, the Rams. I mean, one of the stories of the season, Danny. I mean, one of the things we enjoyed yeah. watching the most, and they were a fascinating group. I mean, when I think about the 2017 NFL season, they're going to be one of the teams I go to first. Yeah, I mean, it, they put together one of the most impressive offensive turnarounds, you know, maybe in league history. They were probably, the, I mean, they were the worst offense in the NFL last year. And McVay, Sean McVay came in, 
kind of re-energized the entire organization. You know, he put together a good free agent class, added some guys to their offense that would, you know, really work in his system. And then what he did was just simply incredible. I mean, he, okay. So the Rams have been accumulating talent for years. So it's not like he, he inherited like this talent deficient roster, but what he did was he finally figured out a way to deploy and utilize that talent. I think that Jeff Fisher just never could do for years. Um, I mean, he took Jared Goff, from what looked like a colossal bust. I mean, he had a historically terrible rookie season and then made him into what looks like a franchise quarterback. You know, he took Todd Gurley from what looked like kind of a ruined, you know, demoralized running back and turned him back into one of the best players in the game. And so um, you really have to just tip your cap to McVay. I think what he did was amazing. Obviously, he hired a great defensive coordinator and, um, you know, basically handed off the the defense to to him to Wade Phillips, and so I think that was a really great choice too. Um, but yeah, I mean, what he did in turning the Rams around was, I think it was a historical turnaround. It was really, really impressive. It was, and I think that you know you saw kind of a team that maybe was a year away. We got excited about it. I mean, it seemed like in a crowded NFC they had a shot, but. Most of this group will be back. I mean, this is a young team for the most part outside of a few key veterans. Yeah. And what do you think they have to do now, Kevin, or excuse me, Danny, to get over the hump here? Well, I think, well, number one, I think it was it was good to get some playoff experience. I think that was big. I mean, if you look at, I think they were probably the least experienced playoff team in the whole field, um, especially in the NFC. And obviously going up against the Falcons team, that was, you know, that they've, they're battle-hardened playoff team. I think just getting that experience under the belt was big. Um, I do think they have some big questions in terms of free agency this year, especially in the secondary with Tremaine Johnson, LaMarcus Joyner, Nickel Roby Colvin. I think they're all free hate, free agents. And so, you know, they're going to have to make some pretty tough decisions, I think, in free agency to try and keep this, you know, keep the core nucleus together and all that. But for me, it's yeah, it's like more of a psychological thing. I think it, can they build on this year? Um, can they keep that energy going? Can they kind of continue to be this chip on the shoulder team that they were this year um, and be kind of a, an NFC power again next year? I think obviously they were very impressive this year, but. The big question to me is, can they replicate that, I guess? What the Rams do financially is interesting to me just because, it, like Les needs said for Kevin's story, it's more about having flexibility. You have to make some choices, but it's more about strategy than it is being put in a box. The Rams have $50 million in cap space and some key guys hitting free agency. I think LaMarcus Joyner is probably the one guy I'd look at and say they need him. I mean, that's yeah. just, he does so much for them. You know, I feel like with Tremaine Johnson, you can maybe go get a corner elsewhere. I don't think they give Watkins the money that he's looking for just based yeah. on what other teams are probably willing to pay for him. So you have 50 million. And then they also have some interesting cap numbers. Robert Quinn is set to make $12.4 million next year. They would save 11 and a half if they cut him. I know that seems crazy, but Robert Quinn isn't, isn't a $12.4 million pass rusher anymore. Right, right. So there are some things kind of on the books. Michael Brockers is making 10.8 million. Michael Brockers had a nice season. Is he worth 10.8 million? I don't know. So there are some questions they have to answer. I think they have more flexibility than it seems based on the guys they have to resign. But there is enough kind of malleability with this roster based on what they were to still be excited about this team for next year. That's really interesting, too, because, I mean, obviously they got to keep Aaron Donald. I mean, that's that's the big thing. And so do you want to, you know, put whatever it is going to be like 40 or 30 or 40 million dollars into your into your defensive line cap for next season like that is something that they're potentially looking at doing. So, yeah, that the Robert Quinn thing is definitely interesting. The Brockers thing, because um, they're going to be dedicating a big chunk of you know change to Aaron Donald to keep him. And they should absolutely do that 100 percent. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be that that to me, the, the team building roster building thing is kind of what to watch going forward for them. The Rams have. A long way to go to catch the Jaguars and defensive line spending. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that the, the Jags have done something insane. I mean that that's part of the, the issue. Jag, it's oddly for enough, them, but... I mean the the Sioux thing and and Wake, I guess in Miami, the Jaguars and the Dolphins spend the exact same amount of their 2018 cap on defensive linemen, 30 percent, but the Jaguars, because of the rollover cap, are able to spend uh, 57 million dollars on defensive linemen in 2018. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, that rollover. All right, let's move on, uh, Danny. Let's get to uh, let's get to the Bills, who, you know, just were. It's a weird season. They're not a great team. You know, they snuck in 
it was a cool story, but for the most part, we all kind of knew that this Bills team wasn't going to be a factor. And the one question that's looming for them, you know, without any doubt, is who's going to play quarterback for them next year. It's kind of similar with Kansas City. It just feels like the Tyrod Taylor era there is most likely over. Yeah, it was absolutely a weird year. And I think, I mean, it, it felt like a failed attempt at tanking almost. And that was what it took for them to make yes. the playoffs for the first time in 17 years, which is really ironic. Um, I mean, just look at the list of players that the Bills either let go or traded away in the pre, in the offseason. Now, this wasn't all McDermott because they had sort of you know, the power struggle in the offseason, and so it didn't all coincide with just McDermott. But, I mean, they let Sammy Watkins, Robert Woods, Marquise Goodwin, Reggie Ragland, Marcel Darius, Ronald Darby, Stephon Gilmore, and Nicole Col- uh, Roby Coleman all go. I mean, and those guys all had pretty good years. I mean, like, you could talk about Watts, Watkins being disappointing or whatever, but, I mean, they, those guys all played pretty, you know, big roles for their new teams. And so the fact that they still were competitive in the AFC and made the playoffs and, you know, all this stuff, it, it's actually pretty incredible that it happened, especially when halfway through the year they decided to turn to Nathan Peterman and that was a total disaster. So um, I, the one stat that just stands out to me about this this Bills season is the team had 16 turnovers in, in the entire year and f- six of them came in one game. <laughs> Tyra Taylor did not th- did not throw interceptions. I mean, the fact no. that he threw one on a tipped ball in the playoff game is an outlier. I mean, I, you could say a lot of things about Tyrod Taylor. I mean, people have. I don't know why teams would be so willing and so excited to move on from Tyrod Taylor. Tyrod Taylor is a flawed quarterback with a specific set of skills. Yep. That there are worse things you can be it, it, right now. I think there are teams that would benefit from Tyrod Taylor being their quarterback and. I will not be surprised if some team is very motivated to be one of them this offseason. You can't. Yeah, absolutely. Tyrod Taylor is a top five just Twitter flashpoint where you can't say anything positive about him without 80 Bills right. fans getting mad at you. Yes. The other, the other, you can't say anything positive about Derek Carr or Andrew Luck without Seahawks fans getting mad at you. You can't say anything <laughs> yeah. negative about the Eagles at all. Just don't even talk about them on Twitter. And I think there's some Cowboys some Cowboys uh, sacred cows too, but that's, that's the, that's the grouping for me as far as just, you just know you're going to get yelled at if you tweet about those things. All right, Danny, let's get to the last team here. Carolina, it was some news kind of broke as we were doing the show. Yeah. They fired their offensive coordinator and their quarterback coach. I mean, it seems like that would be the biggest question for the Panthers is what do they do to kind of get the most out of Cam Newton again in 2018 and beyond here? Yeah, that was exactly what I had for my question. It was, well, number one, how does the, what do, what effect does the new ownership have? I don't know if that's going to make a big effect on the actual team or not. We'll have to watch. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you, how does, how do the Panthers, I guess, surround Newton with more offensive talent or get more out of him as a passer? Because the year was defined in, to me for the Panthers. I mean, their defense was basically the normal, what you'd expect from their defense, very stout, good defense. But the year was defined by Newton's, just incredible volatility as a passer. He had nine games this year with a sub-72 pass rating. This is a former MVP that, I mean, nine games, that's over half of the games where you're under 72 as a pass rating. That is terrible. I, he needs to be, you know, he needs to get more efficient as a passer. And obviously they, they turned to him to do the running game, uh, you know, to do the running thing late in the year because basically they had to. Um, you know, he he he's very dangerous as a runner. He changes what the defense has to do. He changes the way that they have to play. And I don't think that's something that should totally go away from their game. But, I mean, we've talked about this, I think, for like the last three or four off seasons. And I know Ron Rivera has mentioned it at least like the last three off seasons is they need to get him running less. I mean, he ran, I think, uh, 50 something times over the last five games. He he ran 11 plus times in the last four games, you know, in the year. And so, yeah, they just need to figure out a way to get his completion percentage up, get him a little more accurate, and I guess just make his life a little bit easier in the passing game. Yeah, I mean, it, they, we saw that this year with the personnel moves they tried to make. I mean, they tried to give him easier throws. It didn't necessarily fit all the time. Their wide receiver position in general is just bizarre. I mean, obviously trading Calvin mm-hmm. Benjamin, they didn't feel like they were going to give him a new deal. They don't really have any. I mean, they have Curtis Samuel as an option, but he's such a non-traditional option, which is kind of what Christian McCaffrey is. It's a very weird combination of offensive players and whoever is tasked with figuring that out. It's a challenge. I mean, Cam Newton is undeniably talented, but again, he's, 
he's not a traditional quarterback in a lot of ways. So yeah. what are you going to look for in terms of how he's a very he's a, he's a strong arm. He can make he makes a ton of plays from the pocket, but he's not always accurate. I mean, there's just so many things you have to take into account with what a Newton based offense is. And I'll be fascinated by who they eventually decide to hire. To me, what you what they need to do, and, and this is maybe too simplistic or whatever, but like they need to hire somebody that understands how to scheme guys open a little bit more because they, I think yep. Newton over his career has been one of the top, like one of the most frequent, you know, just like w- tight window throw passers in the NFL. Like the, uh, an incredible amount of his throws go into tight windows. His guys just can't get separation. I think they just need to figure out a way to scheme guys open more. I, I, obviously, Christian McCaffrey is part of that because he's sort of that that joker piece that they use all over the formation to kind of make it easier on him. But I mean, they need more of that. They need more of those guys that maybe it just means like doing more like you know trip sets to one side and and giving them easy giving him easy reads on you know like that. It just affects the defense when you do that kind of stuff. Just get get the passing game working to his advantage a little bit more. I think right now they have him you know, making too many really difficult throws. And I think that's probably why they're going away from, from Shula. And, you know, I bet you that's what they'll be looking for going forward. I totally agree. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. We will talk to you again on Friday to preview the divisional round. Appreciate it. All right. Sounds good. All right, Kevin, very quickly before we get out of here, let's offer our lasting impressions from the wild card round. What's going to stick with you? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's the quarterbacks and obviously, you know, I wrote in the mid season. I remember this, that there was so much parody in the NFL that, I felt like at some point that it was going to come down to what it always comes down to because there's no dominant team. That's basically coach quarterback and, uh, you know, a a little bit of roster talent, but mostly coach and quarterback. And I think we saw that with Atlanta and and New Orleans. Um, Those those two teams were as impressive of teams I saw last weekend, and both of them are threats to make the NFC championship and the Super Bowl. Um, I think that because there, especially since there's no dominant team in the NFC, um, we're going to see some very weird results. And I know it sounds simplistic and ridiculous, but quarterback matters. Uh, It's the most obvious point in the NFL, but there's a reason for it. And that's why I'm really excited to see what Matt Ryan and Drew Brees can do this weekend. I totally agree. That's exactly what I was going to say. I just feel like, you know, we, it's going to come down to those guys. It feels like, again, I like Minnesota a lot, but uh, having Matt Ryan and Drew Brees is such an advantage and what Drew Brees was on Sunday. I mean, the idea of him just kind of being able to carry a team to the Super Bowl here is very fun. I mean, the way when he's playing like that, it's impossible to overstate how dangerous New Orleans is. And with Atlanta, it's just that, again, we kind of have to reset the, you know, all the the sliders on what we think they are. But that's still a really good team. I, I still think they have enough elements to kind of go in and beat anybody. And that's fun. I mean, it's just another kind of bit of chaos in the NFC. It's why they, I wanted them to make the playoffs. Cause I felt like they could be that. And we're just set up for another great weekend here. I, there's two concurrent beliefs I hold. Number one is that it's really fun to see new blood, like case Keenum and the Vikings in the playoffs. That's fun. Having said that drew Brees and Matt Ryan, I'm glad they're back. I, I feel the exact same way. All right, buddy, that's it for today. We'll be back on Friday to get everyone set for our favorite weekend of the year. The divisional round is here and it is going to be great. As always, thanks for listening to the Ringer NFL show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks, guys. 